are listening to Historically, a podcast where we decolonize history and debunk myths and misinformation taught to you in school and on corporate media. I'm your host, Esha. Today, we have Robert Squarla, the assistant editor of Diabolique magazine, and he's here to talk about COINTELPRO and all the FBI attempts to suppress the left and create new astroturfed leftist movements from the 1960s. Welcome, uh, Robert, uh, to the show. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Because I found you on Twitter when you uh, had that amazing thread about the FBI's psyops, <laughs> for lack of a better word. <laughs> yeah, um, sure. Uh, I'm a writer and editor at a film site, Diabolik Magazine, mm-hmm. where often I try to find a connection between um, film and what some people might term conspiracy, but what I look at as how power moves, like how power operates, often how groups collude with each other to put messages out into the world. So on the side, I also am in the process of researching a book on COINTELPRO. And in the course of that, I found um, documents related to a project that the FBI undertook um, as part of COINTELPRO. And then I reached out to a friend of mine, another writer, Dale Brumfield, and he had already written about this briefly, so he pointed me in the direction of some more documents. And I'm still in the process of going through all of the FBI's old COINTELPRO New Left files to find more. And as I go deeper, I keep finding more. Okay. Um, yeah, that, 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 I know the feeling. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about Diabalik magazine? Oh, sure. Yeah, it's a film site for primarily genre film, which means like horror, fantasy, science fiction. Um, but I'm all over the place. I'll occasionally write about horror. But one of the last ones I wrote about most recently was um, John Wayne's connections to what you might call a conspiracy. He was part of a group in the 40s and 50s, actually, of which he was president, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. The organization was anti-communist, and it targeted actors that it believed to be communist. Um, Some were, but many were just liberals. Hold on one second. I have a follow-up question already, but you said it was 1940 and he was anti-communist? After, sorry, 1940s. Um, It was in the late 40s. Oh, after 1940s. Okay. Yeah, after World War II. Okay, because in 1940s, uh, yeah, uh, uh, anti-communist usually 9 out of 10 times means fascist, but (laughs) just curious. Right. No, yeah. uh, Well, so the group often did overlap. Many of the members were members of the John Birch Society. Wayne himself was. Maury Riskin, a writer, was. Ward Bond, another actor in Hollywood. They were often overlapping. And they had connections to other, what you would call Christian nationalist groups today. Um, The Christian anti-communism crusade started by like Fred Schwartz and people like that. Aha. Okay. That's very interesting. So can you talk quickly about the John Wayne conspiracy? Yeah. So... During World War II, um, there were a lot of writers who leaned left, Mm -hmm. who still worked for the United States government through something known as the Office of War Information. Um, In the United States at the time, there was a loose alliance between the left and the right because they had a common enemy during World War II. But that broke down after World War II, partially because people on the right would not stand for that, people like Wayne. Mm -hmm. Um, Writers like Dalton Trumbo, for example, had written films like Tender Comrade, which was a pro-war picture. But in the course of the House on American Activities Committee's investigation into Hollywood, it was somehow spun into communist propaganda. So essentially, these people, Wayne, Ayn Rand, who was also a member of the group, they were accusing communists of uh, subverting American ideals, values, and going out and trying to essentially brainwash people by inserting communist messages into films. So the real conspiracy there was this right-wing, what you might call a fascist group, who was trying to essentially get people kicked out of Hollywood, and they did, with things like the blacklist. Okay, that makes a lot of sense. Was this connected to another actor, like, say, um, Ronald Reagan at all, or no? Ronald Reagan was actually a member of the motion picture. uh, (laughs) He was a member of the... 
uh, I'm forgetting the name off the top of my head, sorry, the Motion Picture Alliance for the Preservation of American Ideals. Mm-hmm. He was also a member of another right-wing Hollywood group at the time, the Motion Picture Industrial Council. And he was an informant for the FBI while he was the president of SAG. Oh, so my God. He was, so he was a union leader, but he was snitching on his own union? Well, so, and there's more, like, I, I haven't gotten fully into Reagan because I haven't looked into him as deeply as I did Wayne, but there's some information there to suggest that he was a provocateur in the sense that he was trying to push people to go further left than they would so that they would have an excuse to, you know, show everybody how liberal Hollywood was, how communist it had become. So Reagan was definitely very much involved with both of these groups and more. Wow. Fascinating. Um, Is there an, any other projects you want to quickly talk about before we get to the main topic that um, you're writing about or any other articles you want to promote from your magazine? Uh, well, not at the moment. That's really what I have right now. Like I said, I'm in the early, very early stages of researching something on COINTELPRO. Oh, maybe no a worry. book, maybe something else. So hopefully one day that comes to fruition, but um, just website. And then I have a personal blog where I occasionally write called Mondo Americana, where I look into strange and conspiratorial side of America. Okay, so before we start, let's just start with the basics. What is COINTELPRO? So it was this program initiated by the FBI that ran from the 50s through the early 70s. Officially, it was supposed to have ended in 1971, but it actually continued a little bit longer. Typically, when people talk about it, specifically in the press, they highlight um, the intelligence portion of it uh, because COINTELPRO is short for counterintelligence program. So on its most basic level, it was an intelligence program initiated by the FBI to monitor, surveil, and essentially follow prominent left-wing activists and organizations, groups. Occasionally, it did look into right-wing organizations, but often that was for other purposes. With the left, specifically, um, the intelligence portion um, served a very different purpose. It was intended to eliminate disrupt and um, essentially destroy the growing left-wing movement, especially once we got into the mid-60s. And groups like the Students for a Democratic Society and the Black Panther Party started to become very prominent. So it was essentially in opposition to the civil rights movement or? So it was a number of things, yes. It started, prim- so early on, it definitely was very focused on the civil rights movement. As part of the church committee hearings in the mid-70s, it was found that at one point in the mid-60s, like 40% of Klan members were either federal informants or federal agents. The FBI knew of attacks happening in Birmingham before they happened, and they allowed them to happen. Um, They allowed attacks to happen on the Freedom Riders. So um, they were very much opposed to the civil rights movement. But as the 60s moved on then, it um, shifted focus to anti-war protesters, socialists, and anyone else associated with that. So while civil rights was definitely still a consideration because it was targeting groups like the Black Panther Party, um, it had definitely broadened its scope to focus on different aspects of the revolutionary political movements that were brewing at the time. Okay, so that's very interesting. And it lasted for about 30 years? 20. I 20 years. Okay. Forget, yeah. So it ran from the mid 50s officially through 1971. Um, what ended it was in 1971, a group of activists in Media, Pennsylvania broke into an FBI field office one night and they stole the COINTELPRO files. That's the only reason we know about it because activists had to break into an office to find this. And then out of that, further revelations were made, culminating in the um, church committee hearings of the mid 70s. But when I say it ended in 71, that's in an official capacity. There is information to suggest that it was still ongoing beyond 1971, well into 72, 73, and even a little further beyond that. And then I think you can make an argument, it probably spun off into all kinds of countless programs that we are still feeling the repercussions of today. Okay, so briefly, can you explain what they did or what were some of the important actions? Because in my mind, at least with COINTELPRO, I know it's something, all I have is something bad, but I don't <laughs> have a clear, concrete image of what exactly they did. <laughs> right. And that's hard because um, this is actually, so what you're saying is actually fairly common. A lot of people know the name COINTELPRO. A lot of 
journalists will write about it, but not a lot is known about it. And often it's misrepresented. So for example, let me point to something that happened recently. The Washington Post did, um, I guess you could call a conspiracy quiz. They posted an article where, you know, they offered four questions and they said, which of these four conspiracies is legitimate? And I think for the first question, the one that was real was with Dr. Martin Luther King. And the answer was something to the effect that like the FBI followed him. And then when you clicked on the tab, the way they phrased it was that the FBI kept tabs on prominent civil rights leaders, but that's not accurate. What we know from COINTELPRO is that intelligence was something that happened, you know, counterintelligence program, but the actual purpose of that intelligence was to destroy, eliminate, in some cases, assassinate people. Um, Not King, but what they did with King is they tried to get him to kill himself. There's a famous letter that the FBI sent to him anonymously, where they um, essentially told him that they knew he was um, having an extramarital affair. And the way the letter is phrased at the ending is something to the effect of, you know what needs to be done. If you don't do it, you will be exposed. So the letter was intended to get him to kill himself. Um, Similarly, when I mentioned something with like assassination, so the Black Panther Party in the 60s and 70s was one of the few bright spots in America at that time because they were doing things that forced America to change. In the early 60s, President Kennedy kicked off what became the pilot program for SNAP, um, the Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program. Some people call it food stamps. Part of that was also um, test programs for school lunches. But it wasn't instituted fully until, for example, the Black Panther Party started um, hosting their own free meals in their communities. And that pushed the government into doing that. Uh, There was a real fear of the Black Panther Party and the idea that they might take power. And one of the leaders of the group was someone named Fred Hampton. And what we know today, it's something that was a rumor for years, but within the last year, new documents have been released connecting the FBI to an assassination of Fred Hampton. They worked with the Chicago Police Department to murder him. So some of the things that happened as part of COINTELPRO were mundane. They were collecting information on activists or they had informants, but that information, those mundane things would often rise up to a much more sinister and nefarious purpose. So I guess one thing that the FBI was involved in or launched is astroturfed left magazines or newspapers, right? Can you talk a little bit about how this worked? Um, what I found recently was going through the uh, COINTELPRO files. It's something I'm doing, obviously, for that project I mentioned. So I'm trying to go through all of what are known as the COINTELPRO New Left files. So within COINTELPRO, there were sub-projects, sub-programs. There was um, the Black extremist component, which they termed for hate groups, typically um, Black liberation groups like the Black Panther Party. But one of the sub-projects was known as COINTELPRO New Left. Now, in the 60s, there was an evolution of the American left. Um, Prior to the 60s, you had the old left, which often um, was associated with people like Eugene Debs and the American Communist Party. Um, That started changing in the 60s. New people started coming in. New leaders started rising up. Um, Academics like Herbert Marcuse, other figures like Angela Davis, these are people who started coming to the forefront, and they got termed the new left. Now, in the mid-60s, this group formed the Students for a Democratic Society. It was an organization um, composed of chapters on college campuses throughout the United States. The purpose of this group initially was focusing on civil rights, but as the 60s moved on and we got further and further into Vietnam, the focus started shifting to anti-war. And many of these people were also socialists, explicitly, like openly, So this was a real threat to the government, and the FBI responded by creating COINTELPRO New Left, specifically after um, a series of student protests at Columbia University from 1967, culminating in um, the big ones towards the end of 1968 in April of that year. Uh, The reason they were protesting was because um, students at the University of Columbia found out that Columbia University was working with the Institute for Defense Analysis, an organization that's akin to a think tank, and they had connections to the Vietnam War. This was something that incensed activists, and they wanted the university to divest from this organization. Ultimately, they were successful. 
there was violence, but it never really came from the students. It was almost always the police. Um, so this was a threat to the FBI, this nonviolent movement that was affecting change nationally on college campuses. So beginning in 1968, that summer, the FBI started issuing memos where they decided that they would need to infiltrate these groups, um, humiliate them, do everything that they could to make them look ridiculous, to turn the country against them. And one of the ways that they did that is they decided that they were going to take um, the language of these groups. And at that time, there was also a similar movement on campuses and major cities where there was this emergence of an underground press. Um, these were newspapers, magazines, um, sometimes just zines um, that were connected to these organizations like the SDS, the Black Panther Party, or just independent. They did things that other organizations, specifically news organizations, would not do. They were highly critical of the CIA. Um, they were highly critical of the FBI. They were highly critical of the Vietnam War. And this was something that worried the FBI. So the FBI decided that they would first try to promote schisms within these organizations to see if they could get people to write these articles themselves. And one of the things that you'll find if you go through the COINTELPRO files is the FBI is often pulling information from magazines, from um, New Left newsletters. Um, there was one based out of Chicago connected to the SDS, New Left Notes. The FBI would occasionally take articles that were self-critical and anonymously mail them to the people that were being criticized. But in the summer of 68, um, August of that year, there was um, the first attempt, the first proposal, I guess you could say, for what you might call a zine with the FBI term a newsletter. It was proposed by the Washington office in, of the FBI, and it was called the Workshop. This was a direct response to the SDS's presence on American at American University in Washington. Um, this ultimately didn't come to fruition. The FBI didn't approve this one, um, but the purpose was clear. They were going to adopt the language of the left. Specifically, there's a portion that reads, um, it is believed that the anarchist point of view is the most disruptive element in the new left <laughs> and should be capitalized on. So even then, right. the FBI knew anarchists were, you know, a problem on the left, and they were going to use that to their advantage. Sorry, um, uh, Janet is an anarchist, but I'm... Um I'm not, <laughs> so I find this to be, I'm pretty anti, okay, a long story, but um, I find that this is very uh, interesting that they have that. Um, I'm reading it. it. It is felt that the newsletter should also cover vigorously such aspects of the new left as underground cinema, music, right. sex, dope, humor, and so on. Uh, can you explain a little bit about that? Right. So one of the famous magazines that's still in existence today is Rolling Stone magazine. That yeah. was actually uh, an underground magazine to begin with. And it would have been like one of these types of papers because what it was promoting at the time was, you know, psychedelic rock music. Uh, it had articles that were confrontational on the sexual liberation of the late 60s and 70s. It would offer film criticism and radical politics. One of the things that distinguished the new left from the old left is that there was this thing called the counterculture, which I'm sure everyone is familiar with, but um, this idea that revolution was also cultural. It wasn't just political. So politics bled into music, into art, into all of these different things. So it appeared in the magazines because these people were passionate, as just as passionate about art as they were politics. So the FBI wanted to mimic that as well. Ah, okay. Um, I've always wondered, why did they fund random, like, really like bad artists, uh, or at least the CIA <laughs> did. And I'm like, oh, okay. Right. And I was like, ah, okay. Now that makes sense. They were mimicking. And then I guess the other magazine you mentioned is the Longhorn Tale. Well, so there were actually a few of them. The Longhorn Tale was another one. There's some dispute over whether or not it was actually um, ever published. One of the writers that I linked to in that Twitter thread is a friend of mine, Dale Brumfield who wrote about it for the Austin Chronicle and his Medium Post. But there's a book by a writer, Jeffrey Ripps, from the early 80s on American activities, the campaign against the underground press. Um, Brumfield states that it was not something that came into fruition, that they didn't actually distribute it, but Ripps said it did. So I'm not quite sure what to believe there, but the idea was they would essentially use it to what we would call today doxing. They wanted to identify prominent new left activists when you do that, like you don't even need actual state actors. You can just get 
like random cycles to kind of go after them. Exactly. And that's actually something that plays into one of the newsletters, zines, whatever you want to call it, that did get published in the Indianapolis field office. They were targeting Indiana University. And there was an actual newsletter, zine, whatever, that got published uh, from 68 through 69 called Armageddon News. And in that, what they did is they used it to target activists on campus. Um, Specifically, the second issue identified what were members of the Committee to End the War in Vietnam and drew connections to them uh, to membership in the Young Socialist Alliance. This obviously caused an issue uh, in the community, and the uh, FBI estimated that 5,000 copies ended up getting distributed by the American Legion, which was uh, and still is a Vietnam uh, veterans organization, but tends towards the conservative side as opposed to like the Vietnam veterans against the war in that era, which were leftist. That's very interesting. So, um, <laughs> so they were doxing Indiana students who are anti-war activists. Yes. So they were trying to out them primarily as socialists. One of the things that you'll see in these memos um, and newsletters is. The papers that they made, the zines, the newspapers, they didn't want to connect them specifically to beliefs of like people like Che Guevara or Mao. So they didn't want to promote those points of view, but they wanted these papers to still be left-leaning, to at least appear like they were left-leaning. So um, they would often call out people's memberships in like socialist organizations or do all kinds of red baiting to pull, you know, average college students of that era away because socialism still had a negative connotation. Ah, okay. Uh, Yeah, so there was one that um, was a Maoist pro-Che paper that apparently became (laughs) the Rational Observer. Yeah, so that actually is the, that started with the workshop and then it evolved into Chevera News, which was (laughs) like, a shortening of Che Guevara, and then it turned into the Rational Observer. What happened there, and it's unclear to me why it took a shift so far right, because if you read the magazine that ultimately came from it, it's very clearly borrowing like right-wing language to attack these people. So um, according to um, writing from Brumfield, it wasn't very effective for that reason. Students could see that it, if it was not an FBI op, it was like a right-wing group but it still made this evolution because the political beliefs of the institution itself, the FBI, ultimately bled into the paper. Um, and why was, okay, I'm just going to ask it straight away. Why was the FBI <laughs> so racist? <laughs> like, what, why did they see that as a national security threat or whatever they're supposed to see it as? Well, I, I mean, the country was, I mean, I, I can't think of many black leaders that were in power at that mm. time. So, the FBI itself, overwhelmingly white. If you know anything about intelligence organizations, they often recruit, uh, or historically they would recruit from like communities that were very, very white. I know there's a meme about like Mormons in the FBI, and that's nothing against Mormonism. It's just, you know, those communities tend to be very white. So at that time, they would also be like explicitly racist, maybe where they would be, you know, covertly racist today. Ah, okay. That makes a lot of sense now. So it's like the threat to status quo is being interpreted as like a national security issue? Yeah, you could see it that way. And I think like on some level, they also associated activists um, specifically in communities like the the, uh, Black Liberation Movement, the Chicano Pride Movement, um, the American Indian Movement. Um, And I know that's not the proper term for it today, but that's what it was at the time. these were people who were often connected to this image of the third world or other countries, um, Maoist groups mm-hmm. or revolutionaries coming from Latin America, organizations outside of the United States. So often the FBI and the CIA would try to link these groups to people outside of the country and it would cause issues for them. Sometimes they were explicitly linked to them and there wasn't anything wrong with that. It's just, it was seen as anti-American because they were often connected to socialist movements outside of the United States. Ah, okay. So let me know if this is like too far out of the field of the scope of the interview, but since you have a movie magazine, I'll I'll ask anyways. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So um, I heard that the 
FBI and or the Department of Defense like often funds a lot of Hollywood movies or like gives quote unquote um, consulting about movies in exchange for like they basically take part in making the movie. And that's why like we have a lot of um, national security propaganda movies. Like, do you know much about it? So a little bit. Um, I believe there's a great book from an academic Francis Stoner Sanders about the cultural Cold War. Essentially what it was, it wasn't necessarily the FBI. I mean, it was many different organizations. Today, Mm -hmm. it's primarily the military. There's actually an office within the Pentagon that handles this specifically, where they will coordinate and you'll get to use, you know, Air Force planes, Air Force jets, if they get pre-approval of the script. Um, and so movies like Zero Dark Thirty, for example, they actively recruited this. I believe there were stories stating where they were like giving gifts to people at the Pentagon, trying to get them to consult on the film. And then obviously it went on to win an Oscar. So it works and it works as propaganda. It makes so much sense. And, uh, Rambo, for example, like dedicated to the brave (sighs) freedom fighters. of. (laughs) Well, and there's obviously, so you can get into stranger connections there as well. Um, like. If you look at a lot of the anti-communist movies of the 70s and 80s, mm-hmm. they often led to dark places. Um, the director, Joseph Zito, who did, um, I believe, some of the Rambo movies. Mm-hmm. No, sorry, he did the Chuck Norris. Um, he did Chuck Norris movies in that era, which were very, you know, jingoistic, gung-ho. He ended up working on a project called Red Scorpion with a man who would eventually become a lobbyist, Jack Abramoff. Oh, I know and him. It, yep. Uh, not a good person. No. But at that time, he was trying to break into the movie industry. I don't, I don't know him. Know him. I know of him, by the way, just to clarify. <laughs> oh, no worries. Uh, he was a producer on the film, and they were shooting in Angola during the Civil War there. And essentially, it was to act as anti-communist propaganda. Um, the movie came out, and it oddly stars Dolph Lundgren as a Russian agent who turns against the Russians. But they shot in that era, and like you can trace back a history with like American action movies into things like that. Often, they were connected to people or groups that were funding them specifically for propaganda purposes. So, a movie like Red Scorpion would be like the ultimate example of that. Uh, actually, in that case, it does kind of bring us back into the main topic. So, what exactly did the FBI? see as the purpose of, I guess, their astroturfed propaganda? Well, so they saw it as an effective way to counter the new left because, um, and you can sort of, uh, we don't obviously have evidence of stuff like this today, but obviously a lot of people today on, you know, sites like Twitter and elsewhere will accuse each other of being federal informants or ops, whatever. The FBI was actually doing this with new left media. So like a corollary to something like YouTube or blogs today would have been these underground magazines because they had large distribution runs. The New Left Notes for the SDS um, was a national newspaper for the organization and was distributed in cities throughout the United States. Even in smaller cities, um, you'd have like distribution runs anywhere from five to 50,000, depending on the size of the paper. So it was getting out there to people in a way where it was threatening and the FBI needed to stop that because they had not compromised these papers the way they had compromised American media in some cases. Help us become an even bigger target for infiltration by the FBI, CIA, Homeland Security, the FDA, the John Birch Society, Blackwater. We'll even take the post office, honestly, at this point, by subscribing to our Substack. So, Go to historically.substack.com and subscribe today. Also, check us out on YouTube and Twitch with Late Nights with Lennon. Get commentary and trolling from 100 years ago by the absolute master of the form and see how little has changed. It is what is to be done. Okay, and so what was, I guess, some of the more outrageous things they did um, and... Is there evidence to show that it was fruitful or is it one of those like men who stared at goats kind of things? <laughs> well, I mean, so one of the things that you can look to is the FBI's own words. They often would take credit for things falling apart or organizations collapsing. They would frequently get people like professors fired. There's a famous example in Arizona in the 70s, a professor named Morris Starsky 
who um, was a prominent activist who the FBI, they used anonymous letters and sent them to the Board of Regents, and he ultimately got fired from ASU. Oh, wait, wait what, what did they send the letter about? Right. So he got fired from ASU for attending um, a civil rights protest during like his school hours. The university had approved it, um, or at least his department had. Unfortunately, the Board of Regents was far more conservative than his philosophy department. So when they found out he canceled the class with the consent of his department, they still found it to be egregious and went through, I think, like two or three rounds before they fired him. And this was something the FBI was doing in San Diego. There was um, this belief that they were connected to uh, attacks on the paper there, which was two separate papers, the San Diego Free Press, which became the San Diego Street Journal, and another paper, the San Diego Door. These papers experienced attacks from right-wing groups in the area that were eventually linked to the FBI indirectly. So there are examples of this. It's just it's hard to find, and you often have to take the FBI at their word that these were successful because they will say in memos, you know, as a postmortem, you know, we did this and it was successful. We are the reason this rally was so much smaller because, you know, we said this activist was an FBI informant or we distributed this paper uh, on campus and, you know, it turned some of the school against the SDS chapter there. That's very um. Interesting, I guess. Um, so sometimes it was character assassination and sometimes it was they'd take true facts, but like publicize it. Is that right? Right. So one of the things that they wanted to do um, and one of the things that I ultimately am trying to make an argument for is that COINTELPRO is misunderstood in the sense that it wasn't about intelligence. In some cases, it was often about radicalization in the sense that they wanted to push people into more extreme positions to promote schisms. That's not to say, you know, radical positions aren't often justified. It's just in these cases, they often would cause problems. So within the SDS, for example, they would try to promote factionalism and in fact did. Uh, There was a split between two different groups. Mm -hmm. Um, The Worker Student Alliance, which was affiliated with um, a national organization known as the Progressive Labor Party. Mm -hmm. And then there was a second group that formed in response to the WSA, which initially was called the Revolutionary Youth Movement, but then splintered into two separate groups, one of which became the Weather Underground. The FBI actually takes credit in a number of different memos for pushing the SDS into more extreme positions and coercing or pushing its informants to vote for the faction that would ultimately become the Weathermen because they wanted an extreme violent group in power. And that's not to say that the Weathermen were bad. Can you talk a little bit about the... uh, I don't think most people are familiar with... uh, My audience leans super young, so they're definitely not familiar with any of this. So can you just explain what the Weather Underground was and who the Weathermen are? Sure. Sorry. I always take it for granted that people know these things I'm talking about because I'm so passionate and into them. I know. Um, The Weather Underground was a faction that developed out of the SDS, uh, led by people like Bill Ayers, Mark Rudd, um, and they were probably the most extreme faction within the group. Um, They had many things that were great about them. One of the reasons that they formed as part of the revolutionary youth movement was in response to what were perceived as betrayals by the Worker Student Alliance. Um, The Worker Student Alliance was uh, affiliated with this group, the Progressive Labor Party, that formed initially as a Maoist organization and very um, pro-self-determination for countries outside of the United States. But um, slowly, the PLP and the WSA moved further and further away from that until they were actively denouncing Mao and they were attacking the Black uh, Panther Party. Weird. So this caused a problem within the SDS. So they like flipped their positions like 100% from the original They one. were still, right. They were still very uh, socialist. It's just, you know, what people today might call white socialism. Mm-hmm. But they were also an effective organization. The FBI feared that they would gain power because they were disciplined and they were very good at organizing. It's just, mm-hmm. unfortunately, they moved away from legitimately good positions. So the Weather Underground and the Revolutionary Youth Movement obviously held good positions, but they were also what you might call today like social media activists in the sense that they were very much about public relations. They were all, or many of them were very attractive and photogenic, so they were always 
trying to put themselves up front in front of a camera. And unfortunately, in many cases, they were directionless. They often would opt for violence, Mm -hmm. but in a way that didn't promote the movement, didn't help things. Um, Fred Hampton, for example, was often very critical of them, um, saying that, you know, they were more about putting themselves in a position where they can harm things than bring people together. So they organized actions like the Days of Rage and eventually coordinating some bombings of buildings, government buildings. Often these were supposed to be, you know, empty. And I believe any time that they targeted an organization or a building, it was always supposed to be when no one was there. Ah. Um, But this um, backfired on them famously in, I believe it was New York City, where members were preparing a bomb and it blew up in the preparation process, killing a few of the members. Oh, wow. Um, And so it was kind of, um, I guess, what was it? Yeah, it's hard to describe because, like I said, they often had good intentions. But one of the reasons the FBI wanted to push them into power is that their actions often didn't have specific goals. Ah. They wanted to, they would often talk about the revolution and talk about it in a way that was vague. Like, the revolution is coming. The revolution (laughs) will be here. But, you know, there was no in-between. How do we get the revolution? How do we get to that point? And they often didn't have plans for that. So they're vague enough that they can be pushed easier, I guess. And that happened in a number of cases. In Cleveland and Detroit, uh, ex-veteran named Larry Grathwall, who was an FBI informant, jumped into the group. He essentially tried to push them to become more violent and then eventually testified against them when they did. In Seattle, the case of the Seattle 7, where um, there was an FBI informant named Horace Parker. Mm-hmm. He testified before a federal grand jury that he supplied the group with ammunition, guns training. He gave them, um, I believe, different types of explosives like blasting caps, taught them how to make explosives. So the case fell apart because of his testimony. Essentially, what the FBI was doing in some sense was taking this organization that was directionless and purposely trying to get it to become more violent in a way that would discredit both the Students for a Democratic Society and the new left more broadly. Then there was like in the, like the, um, a little afterwards, there was like, I guess, I don't know what to say, but there seems to have like been like a lot more, I guess, softer activists afterwards. So, um, and right. this also reminds me of a thing by like an operation by the CIA called Operation Mockingbird, where they right. uh, cultivated journalists who kind of did press releases for them um, or like strategic leaks that were actually not journalism, but just like press releases. Um, Did the FBI do anything simple, similar like that? So to my knowledge, I haven't found anything about the FBI infiltrating American news organizations. I I wouldn't be surprised, but generally that was like beyond the scope of what they were trying to do. They were trying to stay anonymous. Often what they would do is use third parties. So um, with like these organizations that would work with them or organizations where they, like the American Legion example I gave before, they would try and put something out there so other people would pick up on it. So I'm not aware of the FBI actually infiltrating American media, but they would often try to place stories through third parties, through informants. I see. So, okay. So, and that's why they had a lot of connection with the KKK because the KKK, for example, would easily put out information against like civil rights activists or whatever, right? Well, right. So one of the things with the KKK and the information that's found there is that it wasn't that the FBI was like actively working with the KKK, but again, they were trying to infiltrate in a way where they could guide where things were headed. And if things happened to civil rights activists, that was also okay to them because they were also opposed. They had many of the same enemies, even if they didn't agree with all of the beliefs, they still had fundamentally the same enemies. Ah, so they were... I guess, what do you call it? Necessary allies or whatever. Right. The uh, enemy of my enemy is my friend. Marriage of convenience is what they call them. Yeah, perfect. Perfect example, yes. Ah, okay. So now let's get to a little bit of more about the conspiracy theories with the FBI. Um, <laughs> okay. Okay, so you told us about the Fred Hampton assassination. Are there any other prominent assassinations that they can be tied to? Uh, uh, that's hard because a lot of that information is... Classified. It's difficult to find. So one of the ones I posted about earlier, uh, like a 
month or two ago was an assassination attempt on the life of labor leader Cesar Chavez. Mm -hmm. There's obviously a lot of criticism you can level at him. He eventually did not turn out to be the figure people thought he was. But um, in the 60s and 70s, he was a prominent labor leader, specifically among farm workers and migrant workers coming into the United States, working on um, like grape, working, uh, you know, picking grapes, picking lettuce, things like that. And in the late 60s, the organizations that he was opposing, um, these growers in California who owned these businesses, they essentially outsourced the work to a sheriff's deputy named Jerome Decote, who broke into their offices and stole information from the labor organization Cesar Chavez was leading. This continued to escalate until the early 70s when there was an assassination attempt on his life that the FBI was made aware of. But what came out of that is the same people who probably were responsible for this assassination attempt also had connections to the FBI. Decote had likely passed information to an FBI um, special agent in the field on an organization in San Jose called the San Jose Peace Center. Somehow the FBI obtained the membership list for this organization, an organization Jerome Decote broke into and stole the very same thing. But when pressed in the 70s as part of an inquiry, the FBI agent who received this information simply said he didn't receive it from this individual and he was never asked to elaborate on that. So there was likely connections to other assassination attempts. It's just hard to parse out because, again, um, the MO for the FBI in that era was using two or three layers between them to get to people. So they would turn people in right-wing groups informant and then kind of provoke them, too, into committing acts of violence or let them go to their heart's content in the direction that they've always wanted to but couldn't for fear of being arrested. Ah, okay. And so... um. One of the interesting psychological operations that you've tweeted about is where they placed fake in front of the San Diego journalist, like a fake <laughs> listening device so that people will think that he's crazy. Yeah. Uh, so you've been reading my Twitter feed. I yeah. See. <laughs> yeah. So that was one that's interesting. I haven't found other examples like that yet, although I am looking, but um, there was a journalist working for the San Diego um, Free Press, what eventually became the San Diego Street Journal. It was an underground paper. They were very confrontational, especially within that area of targeting corruption and business leaders. The FBI, for some reason, decided they wanted to go after this guy. Um, he was a journalist for the paper. He also worked in the draft resistance movement as a um, counselor. And he was connected to something in the California region, which was known as the Peace and Freedom Party, which was a third party that formed around anti-war issues. So this guy was already sort of paranoid a little bit. And through an informant, they learned that he thought the FBI was tapping his phone. So they essentially wanted to drive him crazy. If you read the memo, that is the purpose. They want to make him seem like, I think, what they call a paranoiac or a paranoid. Mm -hmm. And to do that, what they did is they installed a fake listening device on his front step mm -hmm. and made it so that he would know he was being watched. Mm -hmm. They would send people by at regular intervals where they knew they would be seen. And I believe in one case, they had uh, some kind of contraption that they hooked up to a bike and just had someone walk by his house. So again, he would see it. Um, I've been trying to hunt down who this was to see if I can verify this, but it's obviously hard to find people in that era who are still alive and easily contactable. Ah, okay. So can you talk a little bit about the church committee and what came out of that? Well, it's hard because unfortunately not a lot ended up coming out of it. The church committee was um, something that rose up in the uh, mid-70s, 75 into 76. Frank Church was a senator who obviously was outraged or at least very confused by what the CIA was doing in that mm -hmm. era. Um, he had other senators on his side, people like Leo Ryan, who were very, I wouldn't call them anti-imperialist because they obviously were okay with certain aspects of imperialism, mm -hmm. but they were still very shocked that the CIA specifically um, was doing all kinds of things that they were doing, like, you know, targeted assassinations overseas, people like Patrice uh, Lumumba. Mm -hmm. But the FBI got roped into it too because of the domestic surveillance. 
So they held a number of hearings in 75 and then issued a report in 76, essentially looking into all of the craziest things you can think of. Um, information on MKUltra came out of this, COINTELPRO, pretty much like the foundation of modern conspiracy belief came out of revelations connected to the church committee hearings. And very briefly, it looked like it was going to be successful. In 76, Jimmy Carter was elected president, and eventually he named a CIA director named Stansfield Turner. And one of the things that Turner did uh, came to be known as the Halloween Massacre. Um, he ended up firing uh, like a number of CIA agents on Halloween and then after and trying to draw down the size of the CIA. Carter also put in place some restrictions on what you know, the FBI, the CIA, intelligence organizations could do domestically. Unfortunately, Reagan won in 80, and since that time, it's just everything got taken back, and we've gone much further in the opposite direction. And it seems like it's just going to keep getting worse. Well, I'm more familiar with the CIA than I am with anything the FBI did, but what Ronald Reagan did was he created the National Endowment for Democracy. So <laughs> basically, instead of he made it into a nonprofit that's not answerable to anyone. As Correct, opposed, yes. Yeah. So, um, okay, so they created zines. And <laughs> yep. um, and then they also created, I guess, art. Um, did Were they involved in the music scene at all? So uh, I, I'm not aware of the FBI doing that. I've actually tried to trace to see if the CIA had any involvement with rock bands in the era. It, it's really hard to find because... Record labels, a lot of record labels, that's where independent labels really started flourishing mm -hmm. in the United States, independent record shops. Um, there isn't a lot to suggest that they had connections explicitly to rock music, although they obviously were important in developing the counterculture, the CIA specifically, because of their testing of LSD, which eventually you know, made it into the hands of the counterculture, and then promoting that. So I haven't found anything within the music world, at least. The closest I've come is there's an F, there was an FBI informant slash CIA informant who was the money man behind the Altamont Free Concert where the Rolling Stones performed famously during a murder. But I don't believe that is connected. If it is, it's incidental. It was going to happen because of the environment happening at that time. Okay. Um, and a lot of people um, say that the FBI was involved in some kind of um, art program? Or am I confusing it with the CIA? I, I mean, I know the CIA was. They had the uh, Congress for Cultural Freedom. Oh, okay, that's uh, what you I mentioned. Mean. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, the CIA was definitely involved, and often they were doing it. So, unfortunately, they had their hands in so much in that era that even artists who were anti-imperialist got pulled in. There was a podcast recently, Wind of Change, about that Scorpion song, Wind of Change, mm -hmm. which is allegedly a song that was written by the CIA. But as part of it, the researcher and journalist behind the project found that uh, like the CIA had tricked Nina Simone into performing overseas for um, a front group. Um, they did the same thing with jazz, where they often wouldn't, they would create front organizations that sounded like the, they were pro-black, or at least at a minimum, they were not explicitly racist like many institutions were at the time. So musicians who were critical of the United States and would not have worked for the government in some ways got tricked into it. That doesn't mean, you know, obviously they promoted American messages, but the CIA was trying to get them to do that. Uh, and, and I guess some of it could be just like it, they wanted like a excuse for surveillance in the other country or something. That could also be it, right? Well, so some of it was they just wanted to promote... Um, American art, because in that era, why? Uh, yeah, no, that's that's a good question. But one of the things that people found is that in that era, America was still technically a young country. Prior to World War II, all of the great art came from Europe, mm -hmm. and um, many of the artists connected to that great art were socialists mm -hmm. or left leaning. So America wanted to promote its art. So we got, for example, like the Iowa Writers Workshop, which has connections to the CIA and the birth of, you know, the great American novel. America was trying to promote itself not only as like a political military superpower, but as a cultural superpower as well. Um, it wanted to compete with Europe and it definitely wanted to compete with Russia, mm -hmm. uh, then the USSR. It still does, apparently. Um, and <laughs> <laughs> I 
Yes, it never changes. Yeah. And so like with COINTELPRO, you can draw like lines from stuff happening back then to what's happening today. Like there are obviously surveillance and intelligence programs happening. It's just one of the things that is unfortunate is I think with the COINTELPRO, the FBI and our government kind of learned that you can't centrally organize something like this because it will get found out, the information will get released or someone will steal it. So now you see it's broken up across, you know, a dozen different, you know, an alphabet soup of intelligence organizations, police departments, law enforcement agencies, and even private intelligence firms. Can you talk a little bit about the private intelligence firms? Oh, well, so it's stuff like Eric Prince, Palantir, Peter Thiel. I'm actually not super versed in that. We know it's going on. Um, Last year, for example, um, the New York Times wrote an article about, um, I believe it was Eric Prince was training activists to infiltrate the labor movement and specifically teachers unions. So we know things like COINTELPRO still exist, but often they're outsourced to private organizations to cover up paper trail. Oh, yeah. I I mean, uh, we've had two guests on who talk about the NED color revolutions. So it's, I guess, easier sometimes when it's happening abroad, but it's much harder when it's happening locally. Do you have any, like, how do people figure out if something like this is happening locally? Which of course it is, but. (laughs) Well, it's hard because it's one of those things. I mean, like during the George Floyd protest last year, I think a lot of people were very cognizant of that. If you were on social media, you often saw activists calling people out for trying to divert protests away from, you know, center cities or, you know, people who are trying to do photo ops with police in the middle of a protest against police. So I think people are aware of it. It's just, it's very hard to find today because you could argue again that a lot of this is being funneled through third-party private organizations, you know, allegedly people like Peter Thiel pay people to post on Twitter. So it's possible these things are happening and it's very likely they're happening. It's just hard to identify them when they are happening. Especially if it's like a domestic actor. For me, it's always super easy when it's a color revolution abroad because they do a lot of the same things, but it's just easier. And so for domestic, uh, because they are the state here, there's nothing to kind of um, push back against it to for you to see, right? Right. And like, yeah, so occasionally we will screw up. Like uh, there was that example in Belarus earlier this year where they admitted, uh, I believe the NED admitted they were trying to initiate that and they got caught. Yes, it was hilarious. Oh yeah, no, no. They said that, that, no, they said that (laughs) it was really funny. Two Russian teenagers went into the NED meeting and then they were saying, Belarus is having a law against Nazis. (laughs) And then he's like, that's going to make it so much harder for us to interfere. (laughs) Exactly. So occasionally things like that happen internationally. It's just, you don't really find that happening in the United States. And if you do, it's like, it's still ambiguous. So like you can look at all of the various crazy right-wing movements that have developed in the United States and trace many of the people back. You know, they have connections to American intelligence firms or like their ex-military people, all of these things that are very spooky. So you can kind of be like, yeah, there's probably something happening there, but you can't definitively put your finger on it. And on the left, it's even harder because connections can be very tenuous. Uh, That makes sense. Um, Before you go, um, do you have any advice for people on how to like keep themselves (laughs) sane in this world? Well, so one of the things that um, I keep seeing recurring in the COINTELPRO files, the things I keep, uh, the files is I keep seeing the FBI trying to promote this idea of factionalism, this idea of, you know, self-surveillance, this idea that we don't need to destroy the left, we can make the left destroy itself. And one of the ways that they would do that is by getting people to accuse each other of being feds. Ah. Um, There was something in that era called snitch jacketing. Today, I believe it's probably called bad jacketing or fed jacketing, where, you know, they would have one of their informants accuse someone else of being a fed. So I think maybe being mindful of attempts to promote factionalism Uh is something that I would offer as advice, because you can't create you're not going to accomplish any kind, you're not going to affect any kind of revolution without some large national infrastructure. Mm-hmm. And to do that, you have to have lots of groups often with conflicting beliefs working together. Mm-hmm. Okay. One more thing. Like, did you notice sure. in your files, like any kind of like FBI talking about anyways, like the Black Panthers or any of the other groups they surveilled, like fighting back and what did they do? Well, so I mean, yeah, like there's a whole section of the COINTEL profiles that are labeled black extremists about 
you know, Black liberation groups. Um, primarily, it was targeting the Black Panther Party because they were the largest organization. But I mean, there were other groups that it got pulled in. And one of the things that you see that distinguishes the Black Panthers from the SDS, um, the Black Panthers were often targeted for violence because probably racism, not explicitly, but it's something that was obviously there. These were the people who were getting killed, Fred Hampton. In San Diego, again, there was essentially what the FBI called a gang war between the Black Panther Party and another Black liberation group called the United Slaves. It was led by someone named Ron Karenga, who is actually responsible for creating Kwanzaa, of all things. But within that you know, community at the time, the FBI wanted to encourage violence because these two groups were opposed to each other. The Black Panther Party tended to be more targeted in their messaging. The United Slaves were a group that wanted to liberate through, you know, revolutionary violence. So the FBI encouraged violence between these two groups. And between January and May of 1969, it resulted in the death of four Black Panther members. Wow. Was violence... Need like was violence? I guess the last resort. As in, is it because they failed in others, or is it just is it just kind of like a random hodgepodge of tactics? I don't know if it was always the last resort. Like I said before, they knew about like attacks in Birmingham during the '60s during the Civil Rights Movement. Um, they were promoting violence between the Black Panthers and other groups. Um, violence was something that was always there as an option. Uh, it just depended in if the situation warranted it or if they knew they could get away with it without anyone finding out. I don't necessarily think they were too concerned with violence so long as it didn't affect the right people. And this is often why you find members of the Black Panther Party being targets of violence or, you know, violence happening and the Black Panthers being blamed. There were people like Geronimo Pratt who were framed for murder by the FBI. So, Violence was always an option. It was always on the table. It just was often targeted towards uh, leaders of color. And how did they end up destroying the Black Panther movement? Well, so, right. It's something that happened with factionalism again. Um, as people like Fred Hampton got pulled out, um, as Geronimo Pratt got arrested, as members slowly started getting pulled in, it fractured like every other group. So again, factionalism, promoting schisms within organizations. That is very interesting. Um, any other important lessons that you learned from your reading the Cointel profiles? Uh, yeah, I don't know if I'm going crazy or not because every You're time not. I read something, yeah, every time I see something new that blows my mind, I'm just like, it's amazing people don't know about this. And it goes to what you were saying earlier, where you're like, your audience may have heard of COINTELPRO, but they don't know about it. More and more, I'm finding people are not aware of these things and they inform our policies today. They inform how intelligence organizations operate in this country today. So we know these things are happening. It's just, it's hard to pinpoint them because as I mentioned earlier, it probably got moved between a number of different organizations. Maybe it's not the FBI today. Maybe it's the Department of Homeland Security. Maybe it's the Postal Service. <laughs> they were monitoring um, activists as part of their, like, did you know the uh, post office has cops? like their own cops. No, I did not. Do tell me about this. Um, so they have, I, I believe it's called Star or something to that effect, but during the George Floyd protests, they were monitoring the social media feeds of activists. Where? Not in a mandate anywhere for the post office, but this was something they were doing. So we know these things are happening. It's just, it's spread out across countless organizations now. So it's much harder to identify. Okay. Well, I hope they're monitoring mine. <laughs> I don't know. Like I feel, <laughs> I, I, feel mean, I feel very like it'll, improve my delusions of grandeur is what I'm saying. It'll make me feel more important. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I, I assume at this point, based on everything I post on Twitter, um, I am probably, I have a file somewhere, although it may not be big. Or maybe you don't and you're not, they don't, uh, we'll just have to see. Well, one of the great things is you can FOIA yourself, so. Yes. Um, I'm right now busy FOIA. I've had, oh, actually, I've told this story before, but um, <laughs> yeah, okay. the funniest thing is I actually uh, didn't know much about Belarus. And I was mm -hmm. writing an article, and I was I still haven't finished this article, but I was FOIAing the CIA files for, for what they did in Bolivia. But I got oh, wow. the country codes mixed up. And it's funny because I <laughs> said something like, are you involved in funding any right-wing blah, blah, extremist groups with ties to fat? Well, 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 it was some kind of, you know, how we have, when you do FOIA requests, you have to like kind of word it properly so that they kind of have to say something. Right. Um, 
Well, um, somehow, I, because I got the country codes mixed up, I sent something in for Bolivia, but what I got <laughs> back was for Belarus with the same thing. And I was like, okay. <laughs> hey, at least you got something back. I've had, uh, you know, trouble getting things back. So oh, it'll that's take always a good thing. Year, it'll take years. Um, or yes. like about two years is for CIA and State Department about a year. FBI is probably longer. Uh, yeah, I mean, I've gotten some things back on various requests I've made, but they're always like vague in a way where it's like, do you want us to send you more? Here's part of a file or something just to kind of, you know, push you away from continuing down the path. Yeah, sometimes they just do the other one where they just send you 10 million documents that you can't go through. Um, and uh, oh, by the way, um, the, one of the great things is if you want any cool leftist books, the FBI reading room, they have everything. So you can read a Killing Hope for free, like a, a Killing Hope, um, uh, Michael Parenti, like all those. Like they have, a, you can, they've now been digitized, so you can get a lot of good books that way. <laughs> That's amazing. Well, thank you so much. And where do people find you? Uh, so you can find me on Twitter at Robert Scavarla. Um, I'll let you figure out how to spell that. Um, and um, your magazine? Yeah, so it's diabolikemagazine.com. And then my blog is Mondo Americana. So you can just look that up in Google. Okay, well, thank you so much for coming. Um, we really appreciate this. And I hope you have a good rest of the day. And no, you, you look at my, um, uh, you're not going crazy. Like anything that is happening, oh, just imagine what you don't know. And it's much, much worse. <laughs> than exactly, <you> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, thank you. It was fun. It was fun talking with you. Absolutely. Please come back when you finish the uh, your research. It will be really nice to see, have an update. Yep. Take care. Bye bye. Music for this show is done by Rectech. You can find him on SoundCloud and on Spotify. W R E C K T E C H. And thank you for listening to our show.